and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me, as always, is my co-host Rob Lamorgis. Hello, everybody. This week is the last week for our Get Me Another Halloween series, and... Man, Rob, it has been a journey. Yeah, we wound up in a much different ending point than the starting point on this one. I, I it feels even bigger of a shift than any series we've we've seen so far. It really does. Like from Carpenter, from John Carpenter's original classic to some of the early films that tried to ride the wave of its success, like He Knows You're Alone, and of course the original Friday the Thirteenth. Then movies like Terror Train and Graduation Day and My Bloody Valentine and Slumber Party Massacre. It is, it's been extraordinary and I have, I've loved every minute of it. But fear not, loyal listeners, because while Get Me Another Halloween is coming to end, we still have a little gas in the tank for 2022. Two weeks from today, we'll be releasing our third Get Me Another Star Wars bonus episode focusing on two fantasy films from the 1980s. Ridley Scott's Legend, and Ron Howard's Willow. Just in time for the Disney Plus sequel to Willow, which I assure you listeners is purely coincidental timing on our part. I'm sure that uh, a Brian Fuller version of Legend as a TV series is going to be announced any day now. Yes. Oh, that would be amazing. That would be genuinely amazing. <laughs> uh, and then after that, we'll be kicking off the new year with our next series, Get Me Another... Conan the Barbarian, coming your way in January of 2023. And we are already working on and very excited for that. But before all that, we have a few more films to discuss for Get Me Another Halloween. As is often the case when we reach the end of a series, the movies we'll discuss today all play with the conventions of the genre that by this point were well established. All of them, in one way or another, assume the viewer's awareness of how slasher movies work, and in one way or another, attempt to subvert that knowledge. Our first film today is a flat-out slasher parody, and among the first of such films. From 1982, this is National Lampoon's Class Reunion. Is it working? Is it turned on? The makers of Animal House, National Lampoon's Class Reunion. No class has less class than this class. Coming this fall from ABC Motion Pictures and 20th Century Fox. In 1978, the humor magazine National Lampoon had a massive hit with their first film, National Lampoon's Animal House. In the wake of that watershed comedy, the magazine struggled to produce a successful follow-up. They did produce an anthology film in 1981 called National Lampoon's Movie Madness, which had a test screening so catastrophic that audiences apparently tore the seats out of the theater. Uh, it was subsequently... <laughs> that is true. Oh, man. Uh, it was subsequently delayed, and another National Lampoon film, Class Reunion, became their second release. 
Directed by Michael Miller, National Lampoon's Class Reunion was the first produced screenplay by John Hughes. From a story by John Hughes and none other than Philip Kaufman, director of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. National Lampoon's Class Reunion revolves around Lizzie Borden High School's class of 1972, or being hunted and killed by a former classmate named Walter Baylor, who was the subject of a sadistic prank during their senior year and subsequently went insane. Now he plans to get his revenge on each of his tormentors one by one at their 10-year reunion. Rob, I'm just going to come out and say it. Uh, This is a deeply and profoundly unfunny movie. (laughs) I mean, there's just no way to get around that. I texted you this. I vowed I would say it on the podcast and I'm, I'm, making good on that promise do it i am ashamed that this is how we have popped our garrett graham cherry on this podcast there are so many wonderful garrett graham movies i love his acting uh the fact that this is the first one it pains me chris although it has nothing to do with his performance in the movie um he's fine in this film and frankly oh he's not the problem yeah there are other people who are fine in this movie as well it's not like the the acting tanked it in every instance uh some of the acting didn't help but some of it was fine like it's not that it's just that the movie doesn't know funny god it's not funny it's not scary i don't know what the hell it is we uh in one of the earlier episodes had talked about how uh you know the slumber party massacre who thought their version was a comedy or not. And that, uh, you know, the original draft of airplane when read didn't read as funny at all, but it was all in kind of the direction and performance. Right. I, I don't know that any version of putting on this script would have been funny to me, at least. Um, It is a movie that look, it's got like, it feels like, all of the worst tendencies of groundlings improv in LA gone wrong. It's like, Oh, we're all going to do a character. I'm the blind one. I'm the Eastern European foreign exchange student who's secretly Dracula. And I'm possessed by the devil and I can spit fire. (laughs) Yeah. And it, it sounds like a movie that's punching down, but it's not even that. It's more like it's punching itself in the face. Like it, yeah. it, 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 yeah. it, it's not even offensive. That's how unfunny it is. It's just kind yeah. of. Uh, the film does star Garrett Graham, who, again, as you say, has given a lot of great performances, including, you know, a lot of Brian De Palma films, uh, Phantom of the Paradise, to name one. Uh, it's also got Michael Lerner, Miriam Flynn, Fred McCarran, Stephen First of Animal House and Babylon 5 fame as well as as the murderist Walter Baylor, Blackie Dammit, who I did not realize until what watching this is the father of Red Hot Chili Peppers lead singer Anthony Kiedis. And once you know it, they look. Yeah, once they you know it, you can't like not see it. Yeah. I also realized he's the guy who tried to take Mel Gibson hostage at the Christmas tree lot in the opening scene of the original Lethal Weapon. Oh. And I'm like, how did I not put that together before now? Um Apparently, you know who else thought this was a very unfunny movie, by the way? John Hughes. Oh. Like, apparently, he um, he is quoted as saying, my screenplay was completely butchered, and my name will be on the credits forever. Ooh. Wow. 
I'm, I'm glad the maestro felt this way. I mean, fortunately, John Hughes, he did okay. You know, the next year he'd have two very successful comedies with Mr. Mom and National Lampoon's Vacation, where they finally were able to make a successful follow-up to, uh, to Animal House. It's, uh... Oh, Mr. Mom, the whoobie. The whoobie. <laughs> I... I don't know why that movie in particular is burned in my brain when I haven't seen it in probably four decades. Uh, oh, it's a classic. Anyway, it's, yeah. I loved it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It. What I do think is interesting about Class Reunion is it does mimic the structure of a slasher film fairly well. And I mm-hmm. think it, it shows what kind of, because what Hollywood thought of these movies at the time, because a lot of these movies are now, you know, cult classics and some are just classic classics, but at the time they weren't really well thought of. I think that's part of it. I think part of the problem is they didn't really like the kinds of movies they were making fun of. I would agree. And and thus the comedy did not spring from the genre for the most part. Right. It's just random jokes that are inserted into Ha Ha, a slasher parody. The few times that they actually have the jokes spring from the slasher parody, I'm not going to say that they're hilarious, but they are the best jokes. For yeah. instance, in the traumatic past incident, what the trauma of the practical joke is, yes. is I'm not going to say funny, but it's playing with the conventions of the genre. And... um and then later on when, uh, what, uh, Mrs. T, uh, what, Tabuski yeah. or whatever. Uh, oh, Tabazuski, who played Ann Ramsey, who I think was Throw Mama from the Train, Yeah, I believe. Yeah. And, uh, and the Goonies as well. And, and the Goonies. So um, it's, this movie's like chock full of, you know, yeah, everyone you know from that time period. But she, uh, she fights off the killer at one point with the terrible uh, lunch and dinner food that she's uh, making. Yeah. And, you know, so it like can bend, um, <laughs> you know, the the um, machetes and things. It's not yeah. terribly clever, but I'm like, you're at least making a joke of the genre and having fun with it. But almost I can't think of almost any other comedy that's really about the genre, per se. You could say some of the over the top kills, but, you know, even that's right. You know, I'm not sure. But that, like that's fundamentally different from the way like you know the Zucker Abrams Zuckers clearly had an affection for disaster movies that they showed at airplane. They clearly had a, a an affection for cop uh, dramas with uh, you know police dramas with with uh, police squad and then later the the film adaptation The Naked Gun. Here I just I don't even think they they like the types of movies that they would be and they wouldn't because that that was it appealed to younger people than the people making this movie. So it's 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 like you would need you'd need time in order for a really good parody to materialize. Um and additionally, I'm going to paint with a very broad brush here. I'm sure that you could point out individuals who do not follow in this uh broad brush generalization I'm about to say. But in the early 80s, if you had a degree from Harvard, you probably weren't the audience for slasher movies. I support your broad brush painting. I absolutely agree. For those who don't know, the the National Lampoon magazine grew out of the Harvard Lampoon, which was uh, the humor magazine at Harvard. So a lot of the people at National Lampoon came out of Harvard. And it's, um, yeah, it's, I'm not saying it would be that way now. Um, I think it's, but in 1981 and 82, it would have just been a very, very different thing. 
Yeah, I'm sure they're watching A24 movies now, and yeah, <laughs> like for for sure. Uh, the movie opens with a flashback scene, as we mentioned, where the traumatic event occurs. And 10 years earlier, the students of Lizzie Borden High, led by Bob Spinnaker, play a practical joke on Walter Baylor, luring him with the promise of sex uh, into uh, an embarrassing situation. And if it sounds, if that sounds just like the beginning of Terror Train, gold star for you listeners, because it is exactly like the beginning of Terror Train. Uh, in this case, the embarrassing part is that he winds up kissing his identical sister. Um, it's very clear that a hand job is going on. Oh, oh, to my oh, eyes, yeah. at least. <laughs> I, yeah, I, uh... I, you don't, you don't see it clearly. It's all in a long shot from the back of the car, but I, between uh, what I thought was a sound effect on the soundtrack, and then just like <laughs> shoulder movement, I and and earlier, um, Bob I think even says she'd love to give you a hand or something oh equally yeah, subtle. Yeah, I did I did I blocked uh, that out? I think. Oh yeah, my I, God. I I do not blame you. Um, also, someone might say, no, that's not. It, it is a, just a kiss, and I'm just some sicko who read into the movie more than it gave. I'm fully willing. <laughs> Leave a comment if if you think Rob's a sicko and it's all in his head. Uh, I'll say this, I, I, and then you jump ahead 10 years, and it's the 10-year reunion. And, and what's weird is, like, the high school was abandoned after that, that incident, so therefore, like, it's this abandoned, like, gothic high school where everything's kind of falling apart, and it's super weird. I'll say this. Here's one problem I have with the movie, right? And this movie's got, again, this movie is unfunny and unscary. So I'm like, I feel like I'm I'm mentioning a problem that feels minor, but I feel like it actually would have made the movie work better. It should have been a 20 year reunion and not a 10 year reunion. Like the, it, it should have had a longer time. And I'll tell you why, because one, if it had been, they graduated in 62 rather than 72, you would have gotten some of that, 50s early 60s nostalgia that you got in the 70s and 80s along with like american graffiti and grease and porkies and animal house because no one had 70s nostalgia in the 80s it took because it takes like a decade for something to be gone for people to start to miss it so you don't get 70s nostalgia till the 90s but also the other thing is they have a musical performance in the middle of the movie, would which would make more sense if these kids came out of the 50s and 60s, and that is by rock icon Chuck Berry. Yeah, you get a, uh, a quasi-Chuck Berry live performance music video, and it, it is, I, I, I perked up when it came on, yeah. I will say that. Uh, the other problem is that everybody looks like they're in their late 30s and not their late 20s. I don't buy that any of these people were like 27, 28, you know, like it... I looked it up and people age differently now, but still. One of the key differences <clears throat> when you were bringing up Halloween and slasher conventions, one of the key differences is that um, in this one, and listening to the Garrett Graham little interview that they had on there, it seemed like this was by design. Um, all of the characters are unlikable, like pretty much yeah. across the board. Gary is the only one who I think you could say is um, kind of normal and just you know, bland, but fine. Right. I mean, he's all right. Um, I guess in that I didn't want to see him, you know, be murdered, but yeah, even the dumb stoners are not fun, dumb stoners to me. I, you know, but no. we've crossed the territory into crafting hateable characters so that we can 
uh, torture them and see them twist in the wind and ha ha, isn't that fun? Yeah. And I, I have to say with 82, cause we, we haven't done all of these movies in, in chronological order. Cause we were, you know, getting them in, um, heart order, I guess. Yes. Um, I was surprised that this happened this early. I, I thought of this as more of a post Friday 3d. Um, but with, with this coming in 82, it's a little earlier. Um, but it's, you know, it just doesn't quite work anyway. Th- those movies no. aren't my favorite anyway. The, I, you hate everyone. And so, haha, we get to see them die. No, I agree. It's, it's, and, and we'll see that as we get into our next film where, you know, it, it also has that, that quality of, oh, I hate everybody. So I actually For will be sure. disappointed if they, if they survive. Um, yeah, I think this movie, it's got a couple of, it's got a couple of key problems. I mean, one of, it can't decide whether it wants to be in, they, they clearly wanted to make it an airplane style parody. They really, you know, thought it was, oh, this is airplane, airplane for slasher films. But at the same time, some of it's played more naturalistic, like Animal House, and it kind of can't decide what it wants to be. Um, and if it's going to be an airplane style parody, it needs a lot more jokes. Because they're not all going to land. You just need a yeah. lot. You need a ton of jokes. And they're not there. No. It, it, it feels like they were pulling between... And I and I cannot explain the distance or the distance between these two things very quickly. But it felt like some of the members wanted to make low-rent Mel Brooks parody. Some wanted to go for zany uh, Zucker Abrams Zucker. And look, I'm not saying that there's zero crossover between those two brands, but the feel is different. I mean, yeah. S- Spaceballs is not airplane is not, you know, airplane is not blazing saddles. And anyway, it, and it and none of it, it, it just it doesn't feel like it's gels. I feel like way too much improv was allowed on set, it, which is okay. fine, but don't keep it in the edit, man. Like, well, this yeah. movie is so, it feels so slow. Yeah. Well, and, and part of that is I, I am sure that the biggest line item in the budget was cocaine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, I'm just sure. Like, because it, it doesn't look particularly good. It's not particularly great. It's just like, okay, everybody's just going off and doing a thing. I do like the map painting of the uh, abandoned high school exterior to make it look like an old evil castle. Uh, yes. That's the one thing I'll yes, say. Whoever did that map painting, kudos to you. It's fantastic. You might have the best thing in National Lampoon's class reunion. We do have a Loomis figure. I should point that out. Uh, Michael Lerner plays Dr. Robert Young. And this is where we're going to get into spoiler territory for anybody who's listening to us talk about this movie and is like, holy, I really want to watch National Lampoon's Class Reunion. I suppose, you know, hit pause now. But, um, you know, it's uh, it, the, the twist is that uh, Dr. Young, the, the, the Loomis-like figure, is in fact Walter Baylor in disguise. And he pulls off a, a, you know, a mask like it's Mission Impossible. And uh, theoretically, this should be clever, uh, but it is not. It does not feel clever. It is neither funny nor uh, profound. Um, and it's not weird. He, like that moment it has nowhere near the weird impact uh, that you get from pretty much an exact same thing at the end of um, oh, Happy Birthday to Me. Yeah. Where you have, by the way, I've just spoiled that one for you too, if you didn't listen to that episode, but there They've is already listened a, to that episode. I know, they have, they have. Um, it, it's, it doesn't even feel weird. And, you know, I, we, we can sit here and point to things that we saw that we didn't like and why we think it is, but you know, 
it, it sometimes you catch lightning in a bottle and sometimes the lightning zaps you your get hands. lightning hits you yeah it's uh yeah that's it uh that being said so all of that uh our second film today also tells the story of a high school prank gone wrong, leading to a murderous high school reunion 10 years later. From 1986, this is Slaughter High. Marty Ranson was the dork of Doddsville High. You get undressed in there. His classmates laughed at him. Are you ready? Here's Marty. Where's the beast? They tormented him. Where's the beast? And then they went too far. (laughs) Now, five years later, Marty's throwing a little party. A class reunion. Come on, you guys. Let's They say he still roams the nuthouse, ever hopeful of that chance to escape, so he can take his evil revenge out on us all. And he's making sure everyone has the time of their life. I feel sick. He's created a romantic atmosphere for rekindling old flames. And a nice place to just hang around. Marty hasn't forgotten a thing. He's giving them a blast from the past they'll never forget. Marty Ranson is still a dork, but tonight he's getting even. Vestron Pictures presents Slaughter High. Written and directed by Mark Ezra, Peter Litton, and George Dugdale, Slaughter High stars Simon Scudamore, Carolyn Monroe, and an actor named Carmine Iannacone, who, as far as I know, is no relation, but who knows, you go far back enough uh, that his name is spelled the way that my last name was originally spelled um, when my grandfather emigrated to this country. And, uh, you know, you have an unusual last name. You're always kind of, oh, my God, somebody else has it. Um, The film was originally intended to be titled April Fool's Day but had to change that title when the producers discovered that Paramount Pictures had already secured it for another slasher film. But the movie still revolves around April Fool's Day, and the opening song was clearly composed when that was the film's title because the opening song references April Fool's Day. Oh, yes. And because April Fool's Day, and it's doing double duty in this movie because the pranks matter, but it's also somebody's birthday. Exactly. Exactly. Um, We should mention the score for this film was written by Friday the 13th composer Harry Manfredini. And some of the music is very sort of classic Friday the 13th Manfredini. Yeah. Except for this one like music cue that's used all the time. (laughs) Sounds kind of like that. It's so weird. It's such a weird little music cue. This is your warning for anyone who does watch Slaughter High. That earworm will not leave your head under any circumstances for at least 24 to 36 hours. You're going to just have to ride it out, man. 
It's true. It really is. Um, the other oddity about this movie is that while it takes place in the United States, it was shot in the UK with British actors and locations. So everything feels a little off, despite the fact that we continually get American flags trying to tell us that, that, that we are, in fact, in America. And it's similar to how some of the films early in this series were shot in Canada, but set in the United States. This feels more pronounced. Because I mean, the actors' American accents are not that, you know, not that they're a little shaky here and there. Um, and, and there's a couple other details that just feel more British. Yeah, for sure. Even the look of the building, I think. The look of the building in particular. It's not so foreign that you don't buy it as an American high school, but like that gym, uh, which appears yeah. to be what? on Like not on the ground floor? I'm just sitting there Yeah, going, it's weird. That... I've never seen an American high school where the gym was located anywhere than other than the ground, ground floor. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's way too like gothic for American, an American public high school, just American public high schools do not look like that by and large. You might get a private school, you know, um, you know, for, for the kids who eventually would go to the Harvard Lampoon and write class reunion. Um, Yeah. Maybe they went to a gothic high school, but I know I did. Um, Slaughter High tells the story of high school class outcast Marty Ranson, who after a truly cruel prank goes terribly wrong, lures his classmates responsible back to their high school 10 years later to exact revenge. Now, if that sounds very similar, it is basically the same plot as our previous film, National Lampoon's Class Reunion. In fact, Rob... The similarities between Class Reunion and Slaughter High are so strong that if you told me both were adapted from the same EC comic story by two completely different creative teams, I'd believe it. But whereas Class Reunion feels like it was made by a bunch of unfunny Ivy League snobs, Slaughter High feels like it was made by a group of British filmmakers whose only experience with American teenagers was watching Welcome Back Cotter repeats. You're going to get three guesses as to which version is more entertaining. Unless you skipped our talk about Class Reunion, you probably already have a good idea. Um, Slaughter High, for me, is... Look, it is a wildly uneven film. Wildly. And I don't care because it is um, entertaining as hell. And I never go for, it's not like some of the other films we've had where we go, had a great beginning and then the rest petered out or it was slow for an hour and then act three was great. This movie, it feels like every reel change will give you like the good reel and then the bad reel and then the good, you know, or like a couple good scenes, a couple bad scenes. Um, yeah. So that you're never going that long without something just bonkers happening. Yeah. That really all is forgiven. Like I will, I then put out of my mind the the past three minutes because this four minutes is just insane. Yeah. No, I agree. It is definitely a more entertaining movie than Class Reunion uh, by uh, by a wide margin. And yeah, I think exactly the way you describe it is it is uneven from scene to scene. But as a consequence, you don't go too long without something you know, entertaining. Uh, the movie starts with a prank, ju- very similar to the one from Terror Train Class Reunion, where a nerdy student is lured into an embarrassing situation on the promise of sex. If that wasn't bad enough, Carol, Skip, and the other students escalate this prank to an absolutely insane degree. <laughs> like, not only do they film him naked, 
Yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, I, I think that the, uh, these students were pen pals with Vicky from the house on sorority row, uh, with where this prank winds up going. It, 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 it is in the vein, but it's even more like physically abusive because while, you know, the house on sorority row, uh, you know, the, 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 the house mother ends up getting shot and killed. Uh, that was not the intention. It's it just an accident. Here, yes. Like here, they 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 film. Not only do they film him naked, they they set up a car battery to shock him when he reaches for a towel, and then they they pick him up and still naked, put his head in the. To- I mean, it, they put his head in the toilet. It's it is honestly extreme physical abuse, and it kind of made me angry to watch it. Yeah, and. And that's only part one of the pranking, uh, because it it gets wilder than that. But I'll tell you, by the end of that, I was really hoping Marty was going to kill them all because they're all terrible. This is also a case where all oh, of the yeah. people who are being hunted are just unlikable assholes. Um, I will. Oh, I have to mention Marty at one point when he's getting ready to to have his his big, you know, like, oh, his, his sexual encounter with Carolyn Monroe. Mm-hmm. He pulls out a condom. Which is the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. It <laughs> yeah. had it looked like a condom for a Klingon. It had like ridges on the back, and it's just it is the most bizarre thing. And the ridges anyway. were colored like a rooster's um, what do you call it? Crop? Yeah. Uh, like, <laughs> yeah. I'm not like, sure. Oh yeah. my god. But that's only part one of the prank, because later two of the students give him a joint laced with something that would make him sick, and then Skip tampers with the chemicals in his lab so they catch fire, leading to Marty being burned and his face doused with a very poorly placed container of nitric acid. Honestly, it's a Batman villain origin story. For sure. Um, And I will say, I'm not victim-blaming, but Marty was not following lab protocol when he placed the... uh, Place that acid uh, on top of a bookshelf. It's like teetering on the yeah. edge of the shelf, high above him, before anything bad happens. And I mean, it's just the the, the what they went through, to, like to do this prank, and what they needed. Mar- like if Marty hadn't lit that joint up in on school grounds, the whole thing wouldn't have worked. They, they, they there were so many assumptions in the crafting of this prank. It's it's bonkers. And it doesn't end there because when Marty comes back as the killer, there are elaborate prank kills that I will say make absolutely no logical sense. Like none things things where you're like, oh, once I trap everyone in the building, of course they're going to try to fix the old lawnmower, but I've rigged it. (laughs) And you're like, wait, (laughs) what? Of course they're going to try and fix the old lawnmower. Like, because a riding yeah. lawnmower is going to bust through, like, heavy locked doors. Um, yeah. I, it, this, again, is the... Yeah. Have the English ever ridden a lawnmower back then? <laughs> I don't understand <laughs> it. I, it's yeah, not... ten years later, all of the students involved in the prank return to the school for their ten-year reunion. Um including Carol, the girl who lured Marty into the prank and is being played by British icon Carolyn Monroe. She is now an actress and lives in the most 80s cocaine chic apartment I've ever (laughs) seen. It's amazing. Uh, I will also add, it totally feels like a London flat 
not an apartment oh, yes. anywhere in the United States. I'm like, that is no. a London flat. And the bed. Like, there's no, and, uh, yeah. yeah, the bed, the, uh, appliances and shower heads are not the type that you get in the United States. It's like, oh no, that that is clearly England. Rob, a couple of weeks ago, you described Hell Knight. And I thought this was great as an 80s slasher film, as it would have been made by William Castle. And I want to say that I think Slaughter High is an 80s slasher film that would have been made by Hammer Films. Yeah. Had they continued to make movie in the 80s and tried to follow trends like this is what a Hammer Films 80s slasher movie would have looked like and felt like. Yeah, like that high school feels like it could be out of uh, a Hammer horror film because it's this oh, yeah. gothic high school. And like the one in Class Reunion, it's abandoned by the time they come back for their reunion, which honestly should have set off some alarm bells that it's like, hey, this place is, you know, but hey, let's go inside and have a party anyway. Well, it, it they don't do that, to be fair, Chris. They sit outside for hours, allow the sun to set, and then decide to go inside instead of realizing, oh, maybe there's not a reunion here that's legit. Uh... (laughs) But once they do go inside, they find a room that is very well stocked with booze and is ready for a party. So they're like, hey, let's have at it. This is what we're expecting to find. This is one American detail the Brits nail in this movie because... It is filled with PBR, ladies and gentlemen. Yep. Heineken. Absolutely. Heineken. Absolute (laughs) ribbon. Blue ribbon. Absolutely. Uh, In the meantime, while they are partying, one by one, an individual in a jester's costume is stalking them and killing them. And as you mentioned, the kills are elaborate and they are graphic. Like one guy drinks a beer that literally makes his stomach explode like an alien was coming out of it. I honestly am not sure what kind of drink would do that. I figured it out. He drank the stuff. <laughs> he drank the stuff. <laughs> yes. Nice. That's my only, oh, only logical stuff. explanation. Um, another girl is melted with acid while she's trying to take a bath. I, I, I should note that she's taking a bath because she uh-huh. was closest to the guy whose stomach explodes, so she got some blood on her. But rather than like just clean her face and try and clean her clothes, she strips down completely naked and gets in a bath. Rob, did your high school have a full bathtub like that? Because I know mine didn't. No, but this is yet another instance where... Marty, the killer, he just knew that, of course, yeah. once the exploding beer gut happens, one of the girls will get a lot of guts on her and then strip completely naked to go to the bathtub where my acid trap can totally get her. Yes, she is 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 melted with acid in what is has some amazing over-the-top, like, like stop-motion special effects where she, like... It's like, uh, you know, when the in Batman, when the Joker has that buzzer that he uses on the uh, on the other gangsters and it ends up with sort of a charred skeleton. That's what happens in this movie, except it's all we all see it in like this stop motion time lapse photography. It is. It's really something. Yeah. And that's where um, I, you know, I've been making fun of these kills and the logic uh, behind them. I did not care one whit whether these kills were logical or not because it is so entertaining. I just, I would stop and note, how the hell did Marty know that this situation was going to (laughs) happen? 
don't care. <laughs> and I Doesn't move matter. On. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, how could he know that Frank and Stella were going to sneak off and have sex while her husband is in the building, I might add. Uh, and yeah. after the killings have already started, that's what gets me. Like over the course of this show, uh, we've we've talked a lot about how characters' behavior changes when they know they're in danger. And you have this point in these movies where they go from it being regular circumstances to being in danger. And when does that happen and how? And does it happen to everybody at the same time? And we've talked a lot about that uh, on this series. Here, the character's behavior barely changes once they know they're in danger. <laughs> well, you still have a party of, you got some food and beer and, you know, you just have to and, keep And, you know, she it. clearly wants this guy who she's wanted from high school despite marrying the other guy. So they're going to go have sex somewhere. And thankfully yeah. he knew just what bed they'd go to have sex on to rig it uh, to be electrocuted, to electrocute them both. Yeah. And, and not only that they would have sex on this particular bed, but that that would be missionary position and that her proclivity to reach over her head to grab the metal headboard bars, which if she did not do uh, the electric uh, electrocution wouldn't have happened either. I mean, this guy is a master of human psychology. Chris. He knows exactly. (laughs) He knows these people. Well, like, like the back of his hand. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the remaining members of of the people who don't aren't immediately killed. They kind of hide out in a room, um, and and they on one of the weirdest logics I've ever seen. They, they they hide out in the room, saying that April Fool's Day ends at noon. So if they can survive to that long, they'll be okay. Rob, have you ever heard of April Fool's Day pranks ending at noon? Like it's some kind of magic demarcation? No, I I was not aware of the post-lunch end of pranks. Um, that is an odd tradition. Uh, I maybe maybe it's big in the UK. Maybe that's how April Fool's Day works in England, um, because that's the only explanation I can have. Uh, in- English listeners, please let us know. Yes, yes, or uh, uh, English listener, uh, please let us yeah. know. <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, but it's uh, April Fool's Day is also hit. April first is also um, yes Marty's birthday, and so coincidentally, the noon thing doesn't really make sense either because he's killing y'all on his birthday when you splashed him with acid, which was clearly after school, which means it was afternoon. I'm sorry, I just yeah oh yeah, yeah. I just I just killed your killed your logic slasher movie characters. Yeah, thanks thanks Marty. Uh, you know it's. Uh, eventually Skip is hanged in the gym, although he manages to escape that fate only to have Carol accidentally kill him with an ax to the face, which I did think was a fantastic bit. Oh yeah. Um, and then it, it, it kind of becomes this prolonged chase between Marty and Carol, um, you know, and it goes on for a while and it's, it's good. Like it's, 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 it's entertaining and interesting. And finally it ends in the same locker room where the initial prank was pulled. And Marty kills Carol with a javelin. Then we get a truly bizarre scene where Marty walks around the school hallucinating all the the people that he killed. And he's attacked by these ghoulish figures. And it doesn't feel like anything else we've seen in any of the other movies we've watched. It feels completely different. Um, it's, It's bizarre. Yeah, it kind of turns into the thriller video, but without the dancing. Yeah, um, yeah, there's it's no that dance. kind of like kind of ghoul zombie type thing. They're not super rotting. I don't know. They've just got kind of the makeup. Yeah, 
And then all the all the ghoulish figures gang up on Marty. And and then all of a sudden, Marty wakes up in a hospital bed. And he's recovering from the injuries sustained in the prank. And a nurse comes in to tell him that the skin graft operation was successful. Rob, what's your take on this ending? Because this, I thought, was fascinating and weird. Um, presumably, it's telling us that all the events of the film happened in Marty's head as he's recovering. It's some kind of revenge fantasy. Yes. And then, um, because that's going to let us know. Th- this is the weird because this isn't the end of the movie yet, even. Because we're going to get to a no. point where you could have had a sequel to a movie that technically didn't happen. Because that's what they're setting it up for. <laughs> Yes. It's so weird. Yeah, I yeah. loved it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's great. And and so then, you know, like he's recovering and then we cut to a doctor outside in the hallway and an alarm goes off. And the doctor rushes into Marty's room where Marty kills the nurse and the doctor and then rips the skin graft off his face and stares into the camera. And it's like, okay, so wait, he wasn't actually a killer, but now is going to become a killer. It's it it is it's truly one of the most bizarre endings we've encountered in this series. Like it's really strange and fascinating. Yeah, where we got to see kind of the creation of evil inside his own fever dream. Yeah. Here's my take on the end of Slaughter High. Um, I think it's the filmmakers trying to one up the twists that you have at the end of movies like Carrie and Friday the 13th, but where those movies had a dream twist ending with a survivor here, they focus on the killer. And I just think it's fascinating. I'm not entirely sure that it works, but I really like it. Yeah. And it, it makes, well, it makes no sense, but it makes sense in the context of the movie that they did this, uh, the coda essentially with Marty, the killer, because this again, it has taken every other character to extreme unlikability. And while we aren't necessarily on board with homicide as an audience, no, um, that the, the beginning of this movie, you really do just it, it sets it up where you just want them all to go down. They are the worst. Um, now I will say it's undercut slightly. Um, with, um, oh my goodness, the, the murdering of the, um, the caretaker who had nothing to do yeah, with Yeah, I had that thought too. Yeah. Cause the first person he kills is the, is the innocent caretaker. Like he's the one guy who didn't do anything, but he's the first person we see killed. It's weird. Yeah. So that, that kind of undercuts it slightly, you know, and who knows how much conscious any of this was, right? But it, it is, right. it does feel like this is Marty's movie. And I think yeah. we talked about this a little with Justin. It's, it's the, um, the moving of the villain from antagonist to protagonist. And here it's, it's right. just full. I mean, it opens yeah. and closes with him. And it, it in yeah. many ways is his comic book origin story. Yeah. And, and it makes all those elaborate kills make sense if it's all just in his head. Like he doesn't have, there's no, it's, if it's just dream logic, the yeah. fact that they, that, that, that pair decided to have sex on that bed makes perfect sense. And it, it's like, well, that's fine because in, in dream logic, that's, that's anything can work in that way. And the, the thing I will say that I loved about this movie is that, there are a lot of movies, you know, much higher budget and more legit, quote unquote, movies 
that will do something like this, where you're watching a bunch of stuff that makes no sense, no logical sense. It'll pull some twist at the end and go, see, it really all did make sense. But right. for me, if I've spent the whole movie wondering about like why nothing makes sense, I did not have a good experience. Like you can fool me at the end. Like the, the usual suspects is a great example right. of everything made sense to me. And I wasn't wondering like, well, what the hell was that? But at the end, it re it reset everything for me. Everything. Uh, yeah. Know, Sixth Sense is a similar thing. Here they avoid that trap, even though it didn't make sense in the moment because of the genre they're working in this very specific subgenre of slasher movie. Right. Um, they're giving these crazy elaborate kills that just made me shrug my shoulders and go, don't care. And so <laughs> it works here too, even though it doesn't make sense in the moment. But there are a lot of movies that get it wrong where it just, it doesn't make sense in the moment. It takes you out. And then the twist at the end doesn't, it doesn't have a time machine for my mind to take me back right. an hour and a half earlier so I can enjoy the movie. Now I'm like, I, I, I want to enjoy it the first time I see it. <laughs> I agree. I agree a hundred percent. Um, yeah, no, it, it's, I, I, I like this film. It's, it's weird. It is super weird for a lot of reasons, but it's not unenjoyable. Um, you know, which is more than I could say for class reunion. Um, our final film today, is the movie that prevented Slaughter High from being released under its intended title. Also from 1986, this, as you may have already guessed, is April Fool's Day. Paramount Pictures cordially invites you for a weekend getaway at the party to end all parties. This is the craziest party that could ever be. <laughs> Turn on lights, because I don't want to see... <laughs> April Fool. Welcome to my home. And lifestyles of the rich and undeserving. Wrong. Oh, Join eight privileged guests who are just dying <laughs> to have fun. Wow, what is this? The bridal suite? You like it? The ladies. I find it useful. Right. The gentleman. We, we, we did on the first date. The young. Well, basically, I possess a, an essential lack of seriousness. And the restless. You are such a jerk. Everyone is having such a good time. It's scary. Something wrong? You're dead. April Fool's Day. Get ready to party till you drop. April Fool's Day was written by Danilo Bach who wrote the original draft of Beverly Hills Cop and directed by Fred Walton, a name that listeners will remember from the very first episode of Get Me Another Halloween as the director of When a Stranger Calls. And I really like that the director of the first film that we discussed in this series after the original Halloween, of course, also directed the last film in, in the series. There's a, there's a symmetry to that, that again, not planned, uh, but serendipity which we've run across uh, has been the driving force of this podcast. 
Yeah, and and I think when you look at these two movies, it really uh you get an A to Z of where the trend starts yeah. early on really very closely trying to copy Halloween. And at yeah. the very end, almost a decade later, where you have the game of telephone has gone on so long that this movie bears absolutely no resemblance to Halloween, really. I mean, there's, you could, you know, there might be one little tiny bit that you say could. Right. But, um, but it's just come so far. And also, because you're at the end of the cycle, I'm not saying that straying from the formula ends the cycle because I think Marvel has like reinvented their formula and kept it going longer than 10 years. Right. It's just more that once you've gone through a simple formula X number of times, you have to change it in order to give the audience stuff they haven't seen before. Yes. And then sometimes you change so much that in the case of this movie at the time, uh, it became controversial to say the least. Uh, yes. I think now it is much less polarizing than it was but as someone who lived through this, uh, renting this uh, back in the day, um, I was always fine with it, um, again, because of the experience of the film. But there were people who were not fine with yeah. this movie. Um, we should at this, I think at this point, we should, you know, we always put spoiler warnings. I think we just just should reiterate uh, the spoiler warning because, um, you know, usually it's, it, we just, it's tough to talk about these movies in general without talking about the twists at the end. Uh, in this movie, it is even more so than any of the others. Uh, if you haven't seen April Fool's Day and want to watch it spoiler-free for the first time, which we highly recommend, hit pause and come back oh, yeah. to us it's after. It's a fun movie. Yeah, it's a fun, it's totally a fun movie, and I like it a lot, but it's one of those ones where the the... It's not. It's not simply a twist at the end, real revealing who did it. No, it is much more no, than it is that, not. and it, it puts everything else into sort of a different light. So I just I want to say that before we get further into it, because there's no way we could talk about it without that. Um, I also want to mention that the movie was produced by Frank Mancuso Jr., who also had a big slasher movie success, producing all of the sequels to Friday the Thirteenth. Like he had come aboard when Paramount bought that first movie which was produced independently, he came on board with that and, and was the producer of the Friday the 13th sequels. Um, and it's got a very Agatha Christie-esque setup with a group of friends and a few strangers spending the weekend at an isolated home on an island of their, their college friend, Muffy St. John. But all is not as it seems with Muffy or her house, and soon it appears that a killer might be stalking one of them. Uh, April Fool's Day, first of all, I say it has a terrific cast. Deborah Foreman, Amy Steele from Friday the 13th Part 2, Thomas Wilson, Biff from the Back to the Future movies, uh, Clayton Rohner from one of the underrated uh, 80s teen films, Just One of the Guys, Jay Baker, Deborah Goodrich, uh, Ken Oland, Griffin O'Neill, and Leah Pinson. So we open with a group of Muffy's friends waiting at the dock. And one of them, Chaz, has a video camera and is filming the others. And the first scene of the film is a video clip of a girl talking about herself. She introduces herself as Mary O'Reilly O'Toole O'Shea. And she's talking about how she's going to go to convent school next year and all this other stuff. And then it becomes very clear that that is all bullshit. The girl's name is actually Nikki. And she is very much not going to be a nun. But this first scene, 
tells you something about this movie from the very beginning, that things are not what they seem. And Nikki's little description of herself, which ends in a twist, is just just the way this movie does. And from the get-go, it is setting up the pieces of how this movie works. I think it's exceptionally laid out. Yeah, no, this is one where, I mean, everything in here is, it's a little looser than 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 some movies that I would describe this way, but this is a clockwork film. Yes. Where every piece has been meticulously placed. Um, you know, you could, you could, as with anything, if you want to poke, you can poke, right? I'm not going to, this is not a, a perfect film. It's not John Carpenter's Halloween, no. but it is a, a clockwork script and the, the way it was filmed and edited together. Because once the twist comes, I will say, you will think in your mind, oh, wait, they cheated. That's bullshit. They didn't. And it rides the line. It rides the line in a couple spots, but they did not cheat when you go back and look at this thing a second time. Yeah. And so, and, and all of that comes from the, the planning for all of this from the get-go. And what I love is that in, in this will I'm getting sideways spoilery without sure. going there completely. Uh, the thing that I love is that when they looked at, where the slasher genre had gone. Mm -hmm. They noticed something that we've talked about time and time again, which is the prankster character and having a fake prank that happens before the real deaths happen. Right. And the way that that becomes the central thrust of this movie, which is probably not surprising. It's called April fool's day. And then it just, it goes from there and it's just, it's, it's, I really love it. Yeah, no, no, it's it's terrific. Um, after the scene at the dock, we see Muffy in her house preparing for guests. And she comes across this jack-in-the-box. And we get a memory of her receiving that gift as a child. And we see the child version of Muffy turning the knob and turning it and then pops out at the end, not a clown, but a monster. And again, subverting the expectations with a twist at the end. That is this whole movie. And I gotta say, the way Deborah Foreman plays this scene as she's remembering her childhood is so good. Because you look at her and she could either be reminiscing about a fond childhood memory or becoming completely unhinged. And you cannot tell. It could be read either way. It is, it's really good acting. She is fantastic throughout this whole movie. And yeah. one could say gives a couple different performances, uh, which makes sense within the context of the, of the story. And because she is the central figure, she is your rich uncle Moneybags who's invited you here in a sense, right? Uh, to spend the night in the haunted house. Yeah. What I do love is that as things progress and she she begins to act weirder and things are happening, um, the rest of the kids don't act like idiots. Yes. Um, they, I won't say that it's completely 100% realistic in how they behave. It is a movie. But people do things that generally you think that they would. Uh, they don't go, oh, someone went missing. I bet it's just X. Let's not look for him for the next 30 minutes. Like they don't do that. Yes, absolutely. I also think the group dynamic on the island is super interesting because you have an existing group of friends with Nikki and Rob and Kit and Chaz and Arch, but then you also have a, a few people who aren't part of that group. Nan, who met Muffy in drama club. There's another clue for you folks. 
and um, Muffy's cousin Skip. Oh, I want to mention, Nan tells the others how good Muffy was in a production of Ghosts, which is probably likely referring to Heinrich Ibsen's play, Ghosts, which revolves around two characters who are discovered to be brother and sister. Again, foreshadowing. Uh, and Rob, did you pick up which college Muffy and her friends are students yes, at? Yes, Vassar. I did pick that up. I I, I made sure <laughs> to tell uh, my wife, who would not watch this movie or any horror movie with me at all, because uh, she does not enjoy them. Um, on the boat over, there's a ferry boat over to the island, and Skip and Arch get into an argument over a game they're playing with a, a switchblade, of all things. And Arch accidentally throws the knife into Skip's gut, and then he falls into the water, and then we have this reveal that it turns out it was all a gag that the two played on everybody with like a fake knife and a, and a blood pack. But then shortly after this practical joke, a real accident occurs when one of the deckhands, who's already in the water after the joke, gets crushed by the boat as it docks on the island. And he's seriously injured with this gruesome damage to the eye. And, and it's a great setup for a motive for a killer, a red herring motive, I might add, but a motive nonetheless. Yeah, this whole sequence, um, and this is where I you just give credit to uh, Mr. Walton, I guess, uh, with the direction. Yeah. This sequence is great. It moves. You're getting little bits of characterization as you go through, but then the gags themselves are just directed great. And this is the sequence where early, th- that first shot that you talked about is a video camera. So that is Academy Ratio. But the movie switches to two, three, five to one, by the way. Uh, I, you might know another little film that we covered whose ratio was two, three, five to one that started this whole damn thing. That would be the original Halloween. It's so funny that most of the movies in the middle were one, eight, five. Yeah. But we begin and end with, with two, three, five to one. It's very interesting. And it's used to great effect in these sequences and throughout yeah. the film. Like it is not... He didn't just uh, do it to do it. I'll, I'll say that. It's um, uh, particularly in later sequences, you get some really nice use of it uh, to full effect. Yeah. Uh, once they're at the house, everybody seems like they're having a good time. Muffy is certainly an odd duck because her house is filled with all kinds of practical jokes from exploding cigars to collapsible chairs, lights that turn off when others turn on, and the fact that they're all sitting at this fancy dinner table eating hot dogs and baked beans, which is hysterical. And that, uh, all of what you described or uh, leading up to that dinner, that that is a pranks montage. Yeah. That is fantastic. And again, gets us some uh, red herring clues as well, because... Uh, some of the pranks are not so funny, like the yeah. bondage gear that's left behind in someone's uh, room. Or the heroin paraphernalia or the cassette tape of a baby crying. All of these are in some of the people's you know, uh, uh, guest rooms where they're going to sleep. And it's really well done. Yeah. And I love that in the moment, as they're mixing, kind of, the chair fell over and there's a tape of a baby crying and it's upsetting someone they don't explain it in the moment they let it percolate because it's all part of the mystery um and that i think is where that that agatha christie feel that you're talking you talked about earlier comes in where the unfolding of who might have motive and why things are left a little 
uh, a little unsaid in the beginning. It it all gets said eventually, but um, yeah. but they but it's paced out very nicely. And the next day, Muffy appears very different. She her behavior is very strange and unsettled. Uh, Skip has disappeared, and at one point, Kit, played by uh, played by Amy Steele, sees what appears to be his body floating under the dock. And then soon other people start to disappear, including Arch and Nan. And Nikki sees what appears to be both Arch and Skip's head in a well. I want to come back to the well sequence a little bit yeah, later yeah. once we've gotten to the end, because there is there's stuff with that. Um, and I was just going to say, uh, like Skip, who has, you know, disappeared. We saw him at night going out alone to clip some marijuana. Yeah. And then he went to the Boast house alone. Uh, you get a cat scare, a literal cat yeah. scare, but then someone comes up behind him. And so there, there, there are little bits like that, that go along with uh, the disappearances of people as, as they, as the, the people get knocked off. Yeah. And, and, and the way it builds is really, yeah. really good. Soon other members of the group start to vanish and we end up with Kit and Rob who begin to piece together clues, which lead them to believe that Muffy has an insane twin sister named Buffy recently escaped from a mental institution. And they discover what appears to be Muffy's severed head in the basement of the house. And Buffy starts to chase them with this giant butcher knife. And Rob gets locked in a pantry and Buffy continues to chase Kit through the dining room and Kit, she's just like she has her up against these sort of these big doors, these these big pocket doors. And Kit finally bursts into the living room to find all of her friends sitting there waiting, and very much alive. And it turns out the entire thing, all of it, including the accident on the ferry and the clues that led led Rob and Kit to believe that Muffy had a deranged twin sister, all of it was staged. And as each member of the group was quote unquote killed, they had the whole thing explained to them and they agreed to take part. The whole thing is a practical joke. And the reason for the practical joke is, I mean, it's insane. It's insane. And at the same time, it is fun. Yeah. The reason for the practical joke is that all of this is a dress rehearsal for Muffy's plan to turn the mansion into a resort offering a weekend of staged horror, an interactive murder mystery slasher event. Uh, And she also reveals that Skip is her twin brother and not her cousin. Okay, so now that we've, we've kind of gotten past that point, there's a lot to unpack here. First of all, I would totally go to Muffy's Island to take place in an interactive slasher mystery. Absolutely. I do question if Muffy's business plan is is viable in the long term. It doesn't feel like the, the island can host that many people. We see no real facilities for, you know, like, you know, like how many people you can hold. The kitchen's cooking, you know, because if I'm going, I'm not cooking hot dogs and beans. Uh, you know, I'm, you know, it's a, it's a little bit, it needs to be a little nicer than that. It's, it's, it's really interesting, uh, but I'm not sure. At yeah. All. And, and I will say the beginning of the movie and at the very end of the movie, uh, you get some family dynamics with, um, Muffy St. John, which by the way is the best character name. Yeah, let's <laughs> I just have Yeah, to... <laughs> I've been I've been saying Muffy the whole time and I'm just like Muffy St. John, John, my goodness, what a name. Um so And her her fake twin sister Buffy St. John 
Yeah. Oh my God. But the family is clearly <laughs> weird. And the reason that she's even coming up with this uh, weird scheme is that she's going to inherit the house from her mother. Right. I believe. But dad's think, only, yeah, one yeah, of her parents. But dad's only going to allow it if she can prove that she can make money off it. Which, by the way, this was just a family home that's never had money made off of it ever before. Right. But this is a weirdo family. I want to discuss her dress rehearsal because, frankly, it's nuts. Yeah. It is absolutely like if anything had gone slightly differently, like. Someone could have gotten really hurt. If I believed a crazy woman was chasing me with a butcher knife, I'd do whatever I could to stop her. Yeah, I would have thrown some chairs or uh, what if I had grabbed a real knife and tried to uh, take out Muffy St. John? Yeah, what if Kit had grabbed a candlestick and just bashed her over the head? Yeah. You know, it's it, or a chair. Yeah, apparently, Muffy did not see Friday the 13th Part 2 because she probably would have picked someone else. <laughs> Because uh, you know, Kit Kit has the uh, the ability. Oh, I just want to say, Amy Steele is one of my favorite final girls in any. Uh, like, I think she's the definitive Friday the Thirteenth like final girl in in any of those movies. I think she's so good. Um, yeah, but this is where I will I will pick the net. I don't care. But if you go back with the movie, knowing that this was all the dress rehearsal, and and she wanted to have no one know about it, unlike how people would come in having paid a ticket price to have this happen. Uh, so that, right. you know, why didn't she just have her friends come for the murder mystery and tell them? Well, because then you wouldn't have a movie. <laughs> but <laughs> is the real reason. And I'm like, oh, that's fine. But you go back and you look like Skip didn't know the full extent of stuff, right? Uh, so you see right. hands come behind him, but he was in on on a bit of it. But everyone else, um, you know, you never see anyone mur- quote unquote murdered. Um, right. And you just see the, the killer surprise them. And it all pretty much works. You know, if you go, no one knew until the moment that they have their scene where the killer gets them, right? The killer, the yeah. The one exception are the body props. So when you have that well scene... Yeah. Where you have the... Now, Nan, I think, is actually floating in the water herself. And I don't know how she stayed under the water to float up, but she's clearly, at that point, in on it and pretending to be dead in the water. So that's selling it. But those those fake severed heads, who I, I want to say that one of them even gets picked up. And I'm just like... Yeah, no, it does. I don't care how scared you are. You would know it's not a real human head at that point. Well, also, what if Nikki didn't climb down into the well? Yeah. Like... I'm not sure I'm climbing, climbing down into that, 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 you know, dirty well. I'm not going down there, especially if I'm not a paying customer. I mean, if I'm paying customer, I'm certainly not going down there. But like, even under the circumstances of, of the, the rehearsal, I'm not sure I'm getting into that well. And if that doesn't happen, they don't, you know, like, it, 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 I don't know if it works. All of this leads me to think that Muffy did this because she's actually kind of nuts. Yeah. And I think, again... This is this is a testament to Deborah Foreman's performance because even once things are out in the open, she feels like she's kind of unstable. Not like murderous unstable, but just kind of unstable to sort of put her friends through all this. So it's like it all kind of works if it's like, oh yeah, this chick's just kind of crazy. It's a little strange. Following the the big reveal. Muffy comes back to her room and she's a little tipsy and on her bed 
is a wrapped present, which she opens, revealing another jack-in-the-box. And she turns the knob, and when it pops out, Nan jumps out from behind the bed and slits her throat. Yeah. And except it turns out that Nan used a fake razor in blood, and that was yet one more practical joke. Was that Nan? Yeah, from Drama Club. I totally misread it. I thought that was her mom. Oh, interesting. No, no, it's her. It's Nan, and and, it's, and I know I believe you. Yeah, it's Nan, and and there's like some, there's a little bit of, there's I think there's a little tension there between two of them. Um, and, and this Jack in the Box doesn't have a monster in it. No, it's just got a clown who winks at the very end. That's the last shot is the Jack in the Box winking. But what's interesting is that I think this ending was a substitute for the original planned ending where. After everyone left the island, Skip was going to murder Buffy for real so he could have the inheritance himself. And that would make the reveal of Skip as Muffy's twin a little bit more substantial because as it feels like, it's like, oh, you're her brother, not her cousin? Okay. Like, it doesn't it doesn't really fundamentally change anything. Yeah. But apparently Paramount did not like the darker ending, so they ordered it changed. And honestly, I can't say they're wrong. I think having one more practical joke rather than have a real murder at the end, makes more sense. I, I think so, too. Um, it made it more fun for me. Um, there were a lot of people who really, really did not like this movie at the time. Um, I, like I said, I think that's softened quite a bit because it's not as shocking anymore to people. You're also away from the trend. Um, it, it, and it's funny. I, I, I wonder, you know, I'm sure the Internet, if it had existed in 1986, would have had a completely reasoned, rationed oh, yes. and, uh, and, and, and responsible conversation about this movie upon its release. Yes, um, there would have been no misunderstandings. Um, no. None. Um, I'm kidding, of course. Uh, that is <laughs> just, just in case you think that I'm some kind of moron who has never been on the internet before. Uh, I know. I, I, I see what happens. Uh, Rob, I think that that basically brings us to the end. Uh, I'll, I'll ask the question I always ask at, at the end of one of these series. What have we learned over the course of this series? Well, I think this one in particular had something that the others did not the other series that we've done so far is it starts with Halloween, which is a groundbreaking film that changes the horror genre forever. Absolutely. But one of the films chasing that trend three years later did the same damn thing, whether or not people want to admit or like the fact that it did it. Yeah. But Friday the 13th comes three years later and yeah, and when you see those trends get stitched together, and we, and as you've mentioned, we will eventually do a Get Me Another Friday the 13th. The movies that followed closer to that. We will. Uh, maybe sooner rather than later, <laughs> yeah. given the news of Brian Fuller and A24's series Crystal Lake. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that we time these things to try and take advantage of what's in the zeitgeist, but. Uh, yeah. you know. But this one in particular, there's always that change as you go from year to year but this one was fascinating to see you know just something else injecting in separate dna and you wind up with after you know around 82 probably right because 81 a lot of those would have been already in 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 motion but you wind up with these hybrid movies um from from 82 83 ish on 
and some are more yeah. Halloween and some are more Friday. And then you wind up with by the very end, like I'm not sure that I'd classify slaughter high or April fool's day as I'm like, you've gone so far down the line. I'm not sure they feel very Halloween, but they also feel kind of completely different as well. in a lot of their, um, yeah. you, cause Halloween just didn't, didn't go gonzo like these movies. Um, you know, like Slaughter High. Yeah, it's yeah. it's really interesting, and and to me, how fast all this development happens. Like it's it, you know, almost all the movies we discussed: 81, 82, 83, you know, 80, 81, 82, 83. Like it's a very compressed time frame, you know, as opposed to something you know like uh, happening over the course of of the the better part of a decade. It's a it's. It almost feels like a supernova just kind of like, boom, it's all of a sudden you have these slasher movies and so many of them. And I think partially because they were cheaper to make. It's a lot easier to make a a Halloween-esque movie than it is to make a Star Wars-esque movie that just requires less financial investment to pull off effectively. And if they're – look, if if John Carpenter and and Deborah Hill are two individuals who – you know, made such their pebble in the pond was so big that you had all these ripples. Oddly enough, the just watching all of these and seeing what happens, I I think it's hard to argue that Tom Savini isn't another one because oh, when absolutely. once you get his effects in some of these early movies and particularly Friday the Thirteenth because it was such a big hit, I mean that was not part of the formula, and then it is. And, and that then becomes an expectation yeah. that you're going to get those kinds of effects in these things. You know, um, you know, some people have more money or less money to do it, but um, in trying to one up and top these things like, oh, they had, you know, you got to top the, uh, you know, the arrow uh, from underneath the cot. How are we going to do that? And then you're like, oh, you know, a giant drill and it's going to go through walls. And like, you know, I mean, you start going, no, no, we're going to have an acid tub, <laughs> you know, like we're just, you know, none of that happens without Savini. I, I don't think. Yeah, no, I agree. And and, and the other aspect that, that, that sort of plays in at the very end is, um, you know, uh, in 84, we get a Nightmare on Elm Street yeah. come out. You know, Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street, which opens the door for what I will call the supernatural slasher. And the 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 back half of the 80s and some of the 90s are really dominated by supernatural slasher movies. And in a lot of those, it's something we talked about in the series is, is where from the get go, the antagonist is the driving personality more than a a set of protagonists you know, you know freddy from the get go is this is this figure who can interact in a way that you know michael myers or jason can i have a little pop psychology about all of this um oh, yeah please. which is that halloween you start with the terror comes home it can happen anywhere the right. suburbs your home and it's it's a guy with a knife right it's very what could be plainer right just real life is dangerous and by the end of the 80s you can say these things obviously will play themselves out naturally anyway but that guy with a knife it can happen anywhere the real world is dangerous that kind of horror movie kind of crumbles around the time the berlin wall crumbles 
because oh, all of a sudden it was, I mean, and look, this was a lie in a fantasy. We all now know, <laughs> but uh, for a moment, oh, yeah. quote unquote, it wasn't it the, was end, of the end of history. And uh, it wasn't yeah. ushering in an era of uh, forever peace, but people no. pretended they were sold that at least in the United States of America. I, I can't speak to elsewhere. Sure. We won the cold war, yeah, Rob. Yeah. It was all is just, yeah, democracy was going to march forever. Um, But uh, so the horror movies that are going in general tend to be a little more otherworldly because the horrors of our world get taken over by kind of the psychological serial killer genre, right? Where it's, is it a thriller? Is it horror? Uh, I mean, look, Silence of the Lambs is a horror movie that won the Oscar. I'm not, I will never give that up. Yeah, but there are absolutely. people who will live then, and die on. No, it's a psycho serial killer thriller movie. No one would say Halloween is. It's not a horror movie. It's a thriller. So it that stuff shifts right. into a different genre that's more has a heavier detective element. Uh, in a weird way, it's almost like a giallo on stor- yeah. steroids. But uh, that's a whole other. <laughs> that's for another right. day. Right. <laughs> Well, yeah, and we will. We, we certainly plan on doing "Get Me Another Silence of the Lambs" at some point uh, because there's that whole wave of serial killer movies of the '90s, which is you know, which focuses on a more procedural element. As you say, feels like you know, as uh, say a giallo on steroids. Um, yeah, no, that's that's. Uh, I think that's super interesting, and of course. I want to say that in addition to all of that, we are also planning some Get Me Another Halloween bonus episodes, uh, including ones in which we'll discuss the Halloween sequels, which we didn't really do uh, in this series because we wanted to focus on the movies that were reacting to Halloween. And the Halloween sequels are sort of their own thing. And 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 there's, I think we're, we're going to have some stuff uh, in that regard in the not-too-distant future. Um, We hope you've enjoyed taking this journey with us. As I mentioned, we'll be back in two weeks with a Get Me Another Star Wars bonus episode in which we'll discuss the two two 80s fantasy films Legend and Willow. And in January, we will be kicking off our next series, Get Me Another Conan the Barbarian. What is best in life, Rob? Oh, 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 it's the... Tears of my enemies. What is it? It's to, to crush your enemies, see them driven yes. before you, and hear the lamentations of the women. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to kick off. It's going to be the year of the snake. I don't know what the actual Chinese zodiac is, but we're doing the year of the snake. No, baby. for us, it's going to be the year of the snake. Absolutely. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so some fun stuff ahead. Come back in two weeks. Uh, Legend and Willow are two really interesting uh, fantasy films, and uh, I think we have a lot to say about them. And as always, thank you for listening. We are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorgis. If you've enjoyed our show, please consider subscribing and following us on both Twitter and Instagram on at Get Me Another Pod. And if you like our show, please tell your friends about it. Tell your enemies about it. Tell people that you just have neutral, no feelings at all. Just tell them anyway. You know, and join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, get me another. (laughs) 